today on Wine Access Unfiltered. I'm not going to apologize for anything. You, if you do things for a really long time, you're bound to see some changes. And I wrote my first. Sure. I wrote my first food column in 1980. So that's over 40 years ago. And, you know, if I were writing the kind of stuff that I was writing in 1980, I don't think anyone would be paying attention to me. Because as I said, if you go into the kind of restaurants that we were going into in 1980, when we were going to fancy restaurants with, with air quotes around fancy, mm-hmm. those are restaurants you kind of wouldn't be caught dead in now. Welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. Vanessa, I know you're a fan of our guest today. Are you excited? I'm so excited. I feel like, you know, what I love about our podcast is we get so many guests with from different walks of life, with different careers, and sometimes it's someone that you have like a very personal relationship with or like a long-term admiration of, or, you know, yeah. are a fan of. And today it, that's, that's me. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited that that's you because I feel like there've been a few on here that I'm like, oh, I'm really excited. And you're like, oh, this is my first time getting to know this person, but here we go. Yeah. Um, and you're always very enthusiastic. That's not to say that you're not, but this was sort of the opposite. You know, it's funny. This would have been the person looking back on it now that I feel like I should have known. And I think I mentioned to you earlier, I, I was, <laughs> when I first found out that we were having Mark Bittman, who was our guest on the podcast, I went into the other room and I looked at my boyfriend and said, Hey, do you know who Mark Bittman is? And he goes, do you not? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but then I, you know, I, I did my research and I was like, well, I'm a fool for not knowing who this is. And I think I realized I did know who he was. I just didn't put the face to the name with the ideas and all that he has done for the the food and the agriculture and the wine community. Don't feel foolish because I have known his name for many years. I'm, you know, a, a habitual reader of the New York Times. I loved his, mm-hmm. you know, not with the Times anymore, but um I would make his recipes every time I saw them. And they were I love that. always outstanding. But to your point, I really, you know, hadn't kept up with everything that he's done since then and how prolific he is uh, as a writer and other projects. So I almost feel like, yeah, I thought I knew him, but there's so much more to learn today. (laughs) There is a lot. I took a deep dive over the last few weeks and... I mean, he's written 30, three zero books. That's a lot. Wow. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot. Yeah. He's got six James Beard Awards, an IACP award. He has 2007 TED Talk, What's Wrong With What We Eat, has almost 5 million views, if you can believe it. But I think, you know, the things that he's, he's most well known for is, of course, as you alluded to, being a food writer at the New York Times. He started writing there in 1984 and stayed there for 30 years. So he's definitely, you know, been a force with that paper for a long time. I think probably what I didn't realize that I knew him from was his show that he did with Mario Batali and Gwyneth Paltrow on the road again, where he goes around Spain and eats and drinks his way through Spain. And it's a really fun, you know, bon vivant lovers show. But he's done a lot to your point. He's done a lot in his career. And I am really, really interested to see what his stance on wine is because he's got some pretty, I don't know, what would you call it? He's taken a stand on food. Yes. He has a position. He has a stand. He has opinions. So it will be very interesting to hear uh, what his thoughts are on wine. I think so. We've got two really delicious wines, obviously, because we only drink delicious wines. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the first is the uh, is going to be something from Bordeaux and the other is going to be a Sauvignon Blanc from, from the Loire Valley. And I'm excited to drink both. And I think they both 
will speak to him. I'm told he's got more of a European-centric palette. So I'm curious to find out why that is, if that is a function of how he started drinking wine, if it's a food thing, if it's a value thing, whatever. But we've got a lot to talk about. I'm sure he'll have a lot to say. So without further ado, let's do it. Let's drink. Welcome to the show, Mark Bittman, fellow food and wine lover, expert, knower of all things. How are you? <laughs> fine, but not knower of all things wine, I can assure you, but <laughs> I'm fine. Happy to be here. Good. And uh, you've you've got some wine in front of you, I, I trust. I have a Sancerre directly in front of me and I have that Saint-Julien over there. Perfect. I like that you're starting with the Sancerre. It is, you know, it's noon. And as Emily and Paris on Netflix informed us, Sancerre is a breakfast wine. I had no idea. I had no idea either. Well, yeah. (laughs) So it seems apt. I do remember the days in Paris when you'd go in for a coffee and there'd be these sort of older guys lined up getting tiny glasses of white wine, you know, but it was like their first dose of the day. That's right. Ease into it with a little Sancerre. I like it. You are a knower of food. I mean, that is your sweet spot. You know, food inside, outside and everything in between. But where does wine fit in? I did write about wine when I was young, um, younger. Uh, I was going to say, is this to imply that you are not young any longer? No, I'm not. Uh, But I wrote about wine when I was in my 30s um, and even into my 40s. And I ran wine tastings for Cooks Illustrated for two or three years in the early 90s. So, um I don't know nothing. I know a few things, but I'm not trained. And like, I know where Sancerre is from and I know why they drink it in Paris. I mean, I know those things. <laughs> I know what grape it is. Um, I've been there, uh, but I have a terrible palate. I'm warning you. What does that mean? How do you have a terrible palate? You're nowhere of food. How do you have a terrible? It, it can't be possible. <laughs> I, it's just, it's like untrained. It's like, I like this or I don't like this. And it's kind of, it's sort of, that's my but level. I have to imagine with all your experience with food that you must be able to kind of identify different aromas and flavors in in wine more than just what you like and don't like. I have to imagine that's true. Right. Well, I would know that this wasn't Chardonnay and I would know that it wasn't Shannon. Okay, so you know a lot. (laughs) That's like a lot more than most people. So, yeah. (laughs) But I don't know that I'd say, oh yeah, it's Sancerre. It's Sauvignon Blanc. Got it. Often I find people who say they don't know a lot know actually way more. And the people totally. who say they know a ton know way less than they claim totally. to. Totally. That's probably a good rule. Totally. Um, I didn't say I didn't know a lot. I said I had a terrible palate. And I also said I knew something. <laughs> you knew something. The implication was that you didn't know a lot, but you do. Right, right. Um, and I've been drinking wine for, you know, 50 years. So you got to learn something. If you drink wine every day for 50 years and you don't know anything. I guess it's because you're drinking the same wine every day, mm. which I have never done. So, yeah. I was going to, are you, we like to say, or, or I guess Vanessa has coined the phrase a promiscuous drinker. Are you a promiscuous drinker? <laughs> well, I drink much less than I used to. So I'm less promiscuous, but, uh, and maybe more selective, but. Um, well, promiscuous isn't a connotation of, of how much. Yeah. I, well, or how frequently. It's just many different partners. Yes, that's true. Um, yes. I spent a lot of time in Spain and I was encouraged to drink Spanish wines and eat Spanish food for two or three years, like to the point where I don't really like anything from Spain anymore, <laughs> except anchovies. Um, was this while you were doing the series? Yeah. Okay. But um, I'm very Eurocentric in my wine, my wine tastes. I would almost never look at a wine list 
and order something that wasn't from Western Europe. I mean, mm. almost never. I mean, I'd order sake, um, mm. but I can't think of an instance where I'd order a California wine over a French wine. I mean, if you said, here's your choice, Van de Tabla or Phelps Insignia, yeah, then I'd know what I was doing. Um, I mean, I know what the great wines are from California, I think, or many of them, but I just always felt like the value stayed in Europe, even when the exchange rate was bad, even when shipping was more expensive and so on and so on and so on. I always felt like the value was in Europe, in France, and Spain, and Italy, which is kind of where you'd expect it to be. Yeah. Is it a ripeness thing for you, for your palate as well? I think it's more, uh, well, this is where it gets a little too technical for me, but I think the California sort of preference for high extraction and super ripe fruit and uh, maybe lack of complexity. Do I want to say that? It's probably not that. Um, Something about too much wood, too much extraction, too much fruit, sort of over-the-top wines. But really also, it doesn't mean I wouldn't enjoy some of those wines, although there was a time when you couldn't drink whites from California. That was a while ago. Um, (laughs) They're just not value, you know, and I always like paid for the wine that I drank. So there was always this consideration of, well, if you're going to, you know, go through Mm -hmm a case every couple of weeks or whatever, friends are going to come over and you're going to drink three or four bottles of wine. You know, there's a big difference between something that's 12 or 15 or $20 and something that's 30 or $40. And it seemed like the California wines were just never in that kind of value range that I was looking for. Well, it feels like challenge accepted, Mark. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) but I will say I lived in New York and I cut my teeth on European wine. So my palate leaned in that direction. And it wasn't until I got to California that I started seeing the diversity of what existed here. And I I feel like when you come up in the Psalm world, you think of California as being this monolithic thing, as being heavy extraction, big high alcohols, as much wood as we can shove into it. And then you get here and you spend some time and you realize that there's actually a lot more to it than what our perception is. And I think some of what is happening, and this is just, you know, my sort of amateur look at things. I think a lot of what is being made really, really well in a different style isn't making it out of this state, isn't making it into markets like New York or Florida. Yeah, I understand. But I, I think stereotypes exist for a reason, right? We did get popular, you know, the, the the we being California, we did get popular by being something, by being that sort of style. But as as things went on, you know, the pendulum has swung back. I do agree with you in that twelve to fifteen dollar category though. You are absolutely right. I do think the value still very much exists outside of the United States. Now, when you start getting into the $30 and $40 category, that's when things, I, I think, sort of even out a little bit. That's where you can find maybe that's right the better quality wines um, at a better value in, in California. But it is expensive, you know, to farm here. And I'm sure you could probably speak to that knowing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, the acreage is. But part of it is that part of it is, I mean, let's look at history. When land was inexpensive in California, people were making wines. Who knows what, no one knows what those wines were like. Then there was prohibition. Um, then they started making wines all over again. And they were making jug wines for 20, 30, 40 years until Mondavi and a few others came along and said, well, we want to make better wines. Mm-hmm. By then, land was starting to get expensive. But there was no skill. There was no craft. They had to import people from France and from Italy and elsewhere because they didn't know what they were doing at first. So, of course, mistakes were made. Mm -hmm. And then the land became very expensive. And 
hobbyists began making wine. So you have, <laughs> you know, I mean, not, I don't know whether the wines are good or not, but the fact that there's a, a vineyard owned by Francis Ford Coppola, fine, great, but he's not a winemaker. I mean, rich people always owned vineyards, so that's nothing new. But I mean, I think if you look at France, they've been working on making wines that are very much like the wines we drink now for a couple hundred years, maybe 300 years. Sure. And they've been doing it in California for like 40 years. So mm -hmm. they're learning what they're doing, but there's not that tradition and compounded by the fact that in France, everything was kind of inherited. In California, it had to be bought. Right. And that's a, that's a cost. I mean, I, I understand why the wines are more expensive, but as a person who pays for them, yeah. It's not just a matter of like, oh, yeah, well, they're really good. I get that they're really good and they're getting better all the time, but they're really good and they're pricey. I think you're probably right about that thing of them evening out as they get a little more expensive. That makes sense to me. Yeah, it's hard to find a, a sub $20 bottle of wine from specifically from California that can stand up to the, you know, the $20 bottle wines that we're getting from the Loire Valley or from Spain or even from Australia, right? Like Australia is such a great example of a place where you can have that California-esque style if you want it. They make other wines right. too, but if you want that style and you don't want to pay more than 20 bucks, that's a great place to go. Right. Um, what do you think of this Sancerre? I mean, I think it's Sancerre. It's, I think it's really good. <laughs> it's, it's true to its breed, I think, right? It's really crisp. It's really fresh. It's actually, I think it's much deeper and bigger than most Sancerre. It's, it's a rich Sancerre. It's very concentrated, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rich, concentrated, all, I mean, this is from a single parcel. It's all south facing. It It's just like perfectly situated for like beautiful ripeness and complexity and, and that kind of power and concentration. Yeah. I think that's, well, I mean, I didn't realize its provenance. I didn't know about its prominence, but it does, it certainly doesn't taste like sort of a district wine. It tastes like a single vineyard, yeah. something that people really worked hard on. This is, um, Vanessa, this is Gerard Boulay. I don't, I don't know the producer. Gerard Boulay just known for like, you know, the site that he works with this Mont Dom, it's, you know, prized by like Dagano and the like. So yeah. Cotal sources from here too, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's producer, but it also is like the sites that they work with, you mm -hmm. know, are just some of the best, most prized. I think Mont Dom means like damned mountain or something. And it's because it's like this, <laughs> this big limestone plateau, but it's just, you know, everyone wants their hands in it. And only a few people are, are there, him being one of them. So. I mean, this is a little, it's not what you expect. It's a little, yeah, not over the top, but it's, it's tasting wine. It's not drinking wine. This for me is like a Chardonnay lover though. This for me, like totally works. I get This it. is like Chablis and Sancerre have a baby and like do all the things and <laughs> make something delicious. You know what wine I wanted to ask you about? Do you mind? Um, no, not at all. Of the wines that I've tasted from from Wine Access was um, the Argentinian Pinot Noir. Oh, the Nico, the Dumi Nico. Nico Sere Frere. Yeah. I did a little video on that wine. That's great. That's great wine. It's a, it was like a little bit, um, a little on the riper side. Like I felt, you know, it was a it was a warm Pinot, but delicious. There's an affiliation with like a pretty prestigious producer, if I'm not mistaken. That Nico's, like you said, Sere. Laura Catena. She's yeah. amazing. I mean, I won't say it was my favorite, but it was the most surprising because I don't expect it's yeah. really good. Yeah. I love the Juliana also. Um, Beaujolais. I don't drink a lot of red. So yeah, the Beaujolais, but yeah. Good, good Beaujolais. Beaujolais. Yeah. The best. 
Do you have like a Tuesday night wine, Mark? Is there like one that you, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of across the board and it doesn't sound like you drink a lot of red. No, promiscuous is the right word when it comes. (laughs) Yeah. It's sort of never the same wine twice. I mean, I did go through a phase where I was like, this is so great. I'm going to buy a case and drink my way through it. But then you drink your way through it and you can't replace it. So So I'm curious. So speaking of, okay, it's Tuesday night. Are you going to like make something elaborate and complex for dinner? Or are you kind of like laying low and you just want to not think about food that much? I mean, I know neither of those things. I never make any, almost never make anything elaborate and complex, <laughs> but I think about it all the time. So. <laughs> we have that um, common. In the kitchen, do a little of this, a little of that. Back in the kitchen, do a little of this, a little of that. And that's kind of my style. But cooking is, at this point, I've been cooking so long and it's so routine. It's just, it really is like one of the few things that I, don't know, I think calms me down is the right. Well, you have control over it, right? That, you answered the question I wanted to ask. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if it calms me down, but it settles me. It makes me like grounded. I find it like, and I, please, I'm nowhere obviously in the echelon of you in terms of cooking, but for me, it's like, a me- it's sort of meditative because I'm not good at sitting still. So it's a way to like let my brain kind of do its thing and unwind and process, but I'm still moving. I'm still using my hands and like creating something at the same time. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But you didn't come from a family that cooked, right? Well, that's also not right. I mean, my mother cooked every night and, um, you know, I used to badmouth her. Well, I should say cooked that cooked well, cooked well. (laughs) Most of the food wasn't that interesting. Yeah, most of the food wasn't that interesting, but she did a few things well, and um, she did it out of obligation. She didn't do it out of obligation mm-hmm. and love, but not love of the food, love of her family. And um, the food, I don't think, interested her that so- much. She was never a great eater. She was never passionate about it. She never was like, oh, I can't wait to have such and such a thing. Or, But, you know, she cooked. So there was this habit of, like, every yeah. night, my mother's food on the table, and you know, a lot of it wasn't very good and it was the 50s and 60s. So a lot of it was from cans and people, she had the same thing of paprika in her in her cabinet for like 30 years and, you know, <laughs> sort of um, garlic powder was an exotic spice and, and sort of like that. But again, there was this routine of every night at 4.35, 5.30, whatever time she'd go into the kitchen and she'd do a bunch of things and then she'd bring out dinner. And I think that that's, that was important to me. Um, I think that's a sort of important model for for people. I mean, people are like, "How do you show your kids how to cook?" And I'm like, "Doesn't you don't have to show them how to cook? Just cook and, and yeah, then pick mm-hmm. it up." So, when did your Epicurean senses awaken? Then, when did it become apparent to you that cooking could be more than just opening some cans? I mean, when I was in college, got my first apartment, and I got my apartment in part because the food was just so bad in the dining hall. And I wasn't in New York. I was in Worcester, Massachusetts, and there was no, there were almost no options to sort of, not that I could have afforded it, but it wasn't like, oh, there's this awesome French bistro down the block I'm going to go to twice a week. Or there wasn't, you know, (laughs) even the pizza was bad. There just wasn't anything. There wasn't a Chinese takeout. There was, was nothing. So sophomore year, I started to cook and I had a roommate who knew a knew a few things and he showed me a few things. And and then junior year, I moved back to New York and I fell in with a crowd of people who ate in good restaurants, good cheap restaurants. But, you know, in those days you could eat for $3. So mom and pop places, or we'd go to Chinatown or Little Italy or, 
you know, I remember taking the subway way uptown to go to some Indian restaurant that someone had recommended. And that was probably the first time I had Indian food and so on. And, and then the next year I lived by myself and um, I cooked all the time. I just cooked all, I gave most of the food away, but I just was like working. I was like, oh, wow, here's how to cook a lobster. Oh, wow, here's how to mm. make bread. Oh, wow, here's how to make French fries. It's just like one, I, I mean, so I was cooking things Again, I was I was really interested in Indian food early on, and I bought this little paperback book. It's called The House of India Cookbook. And, and then I went to some store where you could find Indian ingredients, and I started cooking Indian food, which I'd almost never eaten. So it was almost like mm. it was like I learned how to eat and cook at the same time. It wasn't, oh, I love Thai food. I'm going to go cook Thai food. It was more like Oh, I'm kind of curious about Thai food. I'm going to see what it's like. Mm. I better cook it myself because no one else is going to show me. Because again, I was living in Worcester and then Boston and it was the early 70s. There just weren't a lot of options. There really weren't. It wasn't like it is now. With options everywhere in terms of restaurants and traveling if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, there's the white parts of the country are less white. There are so many more immigrants from so many places around the world whose food we didn't get to taste when I was growing up. So, you know, the fact that you can go to you could go to Hmong restaurants or or you could go to Sri Lankan restaurants. I mean, I n no one ever heard of those or few people had heard of those places when I was young. So when you were younger, I mean, when you were still living in your in your mom's house, it's, uh, did you just compartmentalize? Did you not care about flavor? Was it just something that you were like, it's not there, so I'm going to ignore it. Maybe someday it'll happen. No. Well, first of all, you're, that's way too rational for, for me in general, but for, you know, for a teenager, <laughs> um, well, you could make a rational statement without being rational. So, I mean, it was New York. I grew up in Manhattan. So there were Italian restaurants and there were Chinese restaurants and there were kosher delis and kosher vegetarian restaurants, and what were called dairy restaurants. And then I lived near the UN, so there was an opportunity to sort of go eat in the, like every delegation had to have a restaurant that it went to, right? So the, mm -hmm. the Korean delegation needed a restaurant it could go to to have its own food. So the Indonesian delegation had to have an Indonesian restaurant. So in that area of Midtown East, there were all these little you know, holes in the wall, but not in the sense of greasy spoons. They were nice places, but they were, they might be down a flight of stairs, just on sub, sub sidewalk level, or they might be on the, might be storefronts, but they were small restaurants that would serve that particular community. And in, later in high school, I went to some of those and I had some exposure, but earlier it was all Jewish food, Chinese food, Italian food. But all of that was like way more flavorful than what my mother was doing. And I, you know, I knew that. I was aware of that. So, you know, I wouldn't say that I have a terrible palate in general. I think I, I have or had at least a pretty good palate, but I was specifically referring to wine when I was bad-mouthing my own palate. <laughs> Speaking of which, I want to try The this. red, yeah. yeah the, red, the red is the uh, the Clos de Marquis, which Vanessa and I were discussing before we got on here, is on the back of the label, another first wine by Leo Villascas. Of course, you know, very famous property in, in Bordeaux, mm -hmm. but uh, really a second wine of Leo Villascas. <laughs> not to, not to yeah. put too fine a point in it, but it is. Their first, yeah. second wine. Yeah, it's from a, it's from a single parcel um, that was owned by the Marquis de Lascas, but they don't call it a second wine. <laughs> 
And why are second wines not classified? It's just from a parcel that didn't make the cut when they were doing the classifications. That's just this one. I mean, we were Amanda and I, as she mentioned, we're talking before. I mean, like Bordeaux is like the king of second wines. I mean, they do that better than anyone. So I'm not sure exactly why they don't want to call this. Perhaps it's the it may be that single parcel, but but then again in Bordeaux, like you can have non-contiguous property that's all classified. So I but don't know. it all depends on what happened in 1855, right? right? Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, so I guess if they weren't growing grapes on that parcel, then, you know, if there were sheep grazing there or whatever, then it's not classified. Right. We'll get to the bottom of it. Anyway, my first first great wine I had, I think I said this in an email, was uh, 1959 Cos, and I drank it. Wow. Drank it probably in 1976. I mean, it was, it had some age on it, and it was... Mind blowing. I remember it cost forty five dollars. Wow. I don't know what Leoville Les Cos costs now, but that was a lot of money back then. I was gonna say forty five in, in the seventies was a lot. Right. Uh so it was a fifty nine. I probably bought it in seventy three. So yeah. And um and I kept it for a while and it was that real that changed my mind about mm. wine. That was the first great wine that I drank. But I went to a lot of I tasted a lot of wines because I was writing about wine in the early eighties and I tasted a lot of wines. I used to go hang out uh with three or four different importers and you know, they'd all close up shop early on Fridays and sit around and taste what came in that week and I was often invited to join, and um, I was the local wine writer. Basically, this was in New Haven, I, and I'd be invited to join, and that was that was kind of fun. Um, I met Mastro Berardino. Yeah, yeah, people like that. Bunch of kept Bruce Nyers, but and then I did also travel to Barcelona and went around where where they made cava, and then I went. To, I was in Rioja and saw those huge old barrels, and I was in. I saw Brollo and. And Chianti and Burgundy, a lot of traveling in Burgundy. So I've seen a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff, and I've I've tasted a lot of it. Um, but really, I think I'm, as I said, I'm not trained, and I'm I don't think I parse the sort of individual qualities of wines the way trained wine drinkers do. Masters of wine, like Vanessa, right? Does. She is trained. She's got a great palate. <laughs> well, but I couldn't do that with food, you know. Um, and I think you know, I think a lot of people. With wine anyway, and, and I, I think it's similar with food, but you tell me what you think. They kind of discount what they are able to do like by not being trained or not having taken a class or a certification. But you could know so much and be able to taste really well. But there is a vocabulary. For sure. And mm-hmm. you have to learn. You do have to learn that. So, you know, you would use words like tannic and glycerin and you talk about bricks levels and all that kind of stuff. But people who are not trained, they might say this is sour or yeah. it's really sharp or or it's dull, you know. Right. So I'm curious. So what, what do you think some words are that like in, you know, the foodie business? Like, like we, are there words that that you use that you think, you know, Amanda and I or a non-trained person wouldn't understand? No, because I don't think I'm really that well trained in food <laughs> either. But um I mean, I know how to cook it and I know how to eat it. I don't. Six James Beard Awards. He doesn't know it. <laughs> it's just not my thing. I mean, I think it's about enjoyment and it's about in, in cooking. It's, you know, can you produce it yourself, which is so much fun. But in eating, it's like one of the things I cooked yesterday in my four or five hour stint was 
some farro. And I, you know, I just like to have cooked grains around because you can do whatever you want with them. And worst comes to worst, you reheat them and you have a meal, add some veg. Yeah, you know, have something. So we had lunch today, and one of the things at lunch was some of this farro barely warmed up, just spoonful, a couple spoonfuls on a, of it on a plate. So it was so delicious, I couldn't believe it. And it, the ingredients were farro, water, and salt. Mm. So what are you going to say? It's really great. It's a really great tasting grain that's easy to cook. There was nothing unusual about the salt or the cooking or the water. Right. <laughs> and the farro was, you know, like from Bob's Red Mill. It was nothing. It wasn't like single estate farro. It was commercial and organic, but commercial farro. It's just tastes really good. It's like a scrambled egg can taste really good. If you, yeah. if you get it, start with a good egg and you do it right. So um, I'm not saying I don't know how to cook. I'm saying I don't spend a lot of time talking about the flavors in depth. But I also wonder with food, and I've actually been thinking about this a lot in trying to meet people where they are with wine, finding that that vocabulary that is universal across the board. I, I've been thinking a, a lot about it in terms of food and wine, and I, I wonder if the comfortability of speaking about food just stems. And so obviously from the fact that we have, it's been a part of our lives since day one and it's a necessity. Day one. You know, we, we grew right. up eating food. We grew up having three meals a day, having snacks, eating, going out to restaurants. It's, it's a part of our daily lives and wine for some people like Vanessa and I, like we didn't grow up with it on the table. We didn't know where it fit in. It wasn't part of the lexicon. And so I wonder if that comfortability doesn't extend from food to wine, just by way of it's not integrated into most people's houses unless you're, you know, the son of the marquee and at Leo Velasquez and, and it's just there. <laughs> right. If you consider it food, I mean, it's liquid, obviously, but it's, if you consider it food, then you're already equipped to know what you like and know what you don't. And I think one of the reasons I left wine writing behind was uh, that there was nothing for me to actually do. Like mm. with cooking, you could just cook but with wine drinking you were basically just drinking wine and um <laughs> it, that's why i didn't like restaurant re reviewing much either i think that there were maybe i just don't have that analytical mind of i'm going to describe this meal in such detail that you wish you were there to eat it or i'm going to tell you about this wine in a way that's going to really let you know if you share my vocabulary what mm. what i like about it or what's unusual about it whereas with food you can you know with cooking there's always something to do. Go try to make it similarly or go try to make it different or faster or with more ingredients or fewer ingredients or more complicated or less complicated and so on. Wine, you're like, unless you're an analyst, you're a consumer, whereas food, you can take an active kind of like, let's get our hands dirty and get in there and do it. Mm -hmm. Might be fun to make wine. Well, I've made wine and it is, it is a lot of fun. It's worth doing. It's worth, you know, understanding the process to know where the variables could exist, even though you might not play around with them yourself. It's interesting to know where choices can be made that can change the trajectory of a wine's life. But I don't know. I think I think you're right about the analytical side of wine. Not, you know, they're not. I think this is also why wine content has had a hard time being a thing. Like, you know, we have the Food Network and there's, you know, there's shows like you did, right? You go around Spain and you, you eat and it's really fun to watch people cook and watch people um watch people eat. But with wine, there's, you know, there's significantly less to talk about beyond analyzing the wine. I think, you know, the closest anyone's ever gotten to it being interesting, and he was, you know, a, a bon vivant and one of my favorite writers was Jim Harrison. You know, he talked about wine and food right. in a way that was, you know, not just ethereal, but like in a way that just made sense to people as human. Right. There were things people could understand. But I think the mistake is setting wine off 
as something separate from food. And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk. I think, you know, we can talk about it. And obviously people can make a living being engaged in it. But um, I always thought it was kind of crazy that there were wine columns in every newspaper. And there did used to be wine columns in every newspaper. But there was never a cheese column in every newspaper. And that's because Mm. wine is seen as something that's different. And I think cheese is every bit as complicated and every bit as varied as wine. So really you could make that argument, but I think the difference is that wine makes you high. And, and so it's been set off. (laughs) Wine makes, (laughs) you know, alcoholic beverages have been set off as this other category, both officially and not officially, because they have this power that no food, you know, except for magic mushrooms, (laughs) (laughs) no food really has so there is a difference there really is a difference but if you just think of it as a a food category then then it's kind of easier to deal with i think and you don't have to be quite as you don't have to feel quite as expert it's just another thing you're enjoying with your meal like cheese or dessert or or vegetables yeah each of those things you could become a specialist in and people do but no one says oh let's have a well, you, I bet there's dessert podcasts now that I think about it. I bet there's cheese podcasts. Of there course, should be yeah. a cheese podcast. Yeah, no, yeah. Of course I, I feel like I feel like I could get high on cheese. <laughs> I could probably do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you guys think that, but that's because every time you eat cheese, you're drinking wine. So that's very also very true. Yeah, there's rarely a also moment true. where I'm ingesting cheese that there isn't wine alongside in whatever right. capacity right. that may be. Yeah. Um Mark, I'm curious with all of your recipes that you've created, is there one that you're the most proud of? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that the one I'm best known for is the one that I didn't create, which was Jim Leahy's No Need Bread. Right. Um, which is a great story because this guy, Jim Leahy, who was a baker in New York, who I barely knew, called me one day when I was sitting at a desk at the Times and said, I have this way to make no need bread, to make bread without kneading. And I'd been making bread for 30 something years. And, and um, I'd tried all the gimmicks and all the made food processor bread and made long fermented bread and da da da. But I'd never known that you could make bread without kneading. And I went over there and to his, his bakery. And as it happened, the Times was just getting into video. So I went over with a video crew and we, um, he showed me how to make this no need bread. And it was like by far the most popular recipe, most popular story I've ever, it was one of the most popular stories in the history of the time. So, um, isn't that funny? Yeah, that's kind of good. I mean, very little else. I mean, I'm occasionally proud of some technique that I figured out. I did work for a long time on figuring out how, how to roast the chicken so that the thighs got done the same time as the breasts and it got nice and crisp and it was easy and blah, blah, blah. And I was pleased with how that turned out. But most of what I've done has been showed to me by other people or created by other people or adapted by me, not really you know, there's no new recipes out there. It's, it's all like mm. it's all been done in a way. Like no one's going to make well, a better red wine. You know, they're they're just trying to make good red wine as good as it's been made. So, I mean, Alice Waters always says the key to good cooking is you take good ingredients, so you don't screw them up. So there's that. Yeah. Well, if you're in California, that's very easy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. It's true. There is one recipe of yours that uh, has been part of my food life for a long time, which is the pea dip with Parmesan. Do you remember this? With yeah, fresh I, mint and yeah. pine nuts? Yeah. That is so good. Every time I've made that for guests, they're just blown away. Yeah, it's really good. It's sort of a cross between pesto and guacamole. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really good. So fresh and bright and just delicious. So it sounds yeah. like it'd be great with a little sunset. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and what about have you ever had something printed, let's say, uh, that you just thought, wow, I wish I hadn't that's not as good as I thought it was. I mean, if I went and looked back. I would absolutely, I could probably make you lists of dozens, if not hundreds of <laughs> recipes that fit that category because things do change. And you're, yeah. sometimes someone asked me, you know, given your stance about meat and junk food and your stance about eating, how do you justify, it was the word they used, how do you justify the cookbooks they used to do that were, you know, filled with meat and didn't talk about food quality so much and on and on and on. And I would just say, I just say, times change. You know, I mean, I'm pleased to say that, that I'm less wrong now than I was then, (laughs) but I'm still going to be wrong. And if I live 20 more years and write about food 20 more years, I'm sure there's stuff I'm doing now that I'll think looking back was a mistake. But yeah, there's a lot of things like that, especially at the beginning of writing the minimalist column when I was responsible for publishing a recipe or two a week for a huge audience. It was a really popular column from the start. Um, and I look at some of those early recipes and I think, you know, this was the editor's idea or this was because I was desperate and couldn't come up with something or whatever. And they're just not that good. Mm-hmm. Most of them are really good, but especially when they were the editor's idea, there are a lot of bad ones in there. <laughs> Blame it on the editor. The editor, yep. <laughs> that was actually, it was a question I had for you in terms of all that you've talked about, all that you've explored. I mean, you're constant, it seems at least, you're a constant researcher and curious person. I had wondered if your opinions have changed over the years, if you've been receptive to allowing your opinions to change over the years. Yeah, well, I think... Um, when I started writing about food was sort of the beginning of the discussion of organic food. Mm-hmm. So there was that. And uh, when I started cooking, when I started writing about food, Diet for a Small Planet, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary. I mean, I said I started cooking in 1970. Diet for a Small Planet came out in wow. 1971. And Diet for a Small Planet argued that we shouldn't be eating meat in the Western world while people are going hungry in the rest of the world. And that was an interesting argument that I absorbed and thought about. And as the years went by, those kind of arguments resonated more and more. I think our agriculture became worse and worse. I mean, you'll, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to apologize for anything. You, you, if you do things for a really long time, you're bound to see some changes. And I wrote my first, sure. I wrote my first food column in 1980. So that's over 40 years ago. And you're bound to see some changes. And if you're, you know, if I were writing the kind of stuff that I was writing in 1980, I don't think anyone would be paying attention to me because it was really old fashioned stuff. So it's sort of like now you go into, I was living in Connecticut, as I said, if you go into the kind of restaurants that we were going into in 1980, when we were going to fancy restaurants with, with air quotes around fancy, Mm-hmm. Those are restaurants you kind of wouldn't be caught dead in now, you know, just stuffy and and overbearing and uninteresting food that's way too complicated and someone spent way too much time on. And that's really changed. That's not how we eat anymore. We eat a much more wider variety of foods from a wider selection of many more parts of the world. And I think food is sort of simpler and more direct and more interesting than it was 40 or 50 years ago. In part, that's thanks to, again, the incredible immigrant population that, that's been added to the United States, but it's also due to 
you know, very bold people in first in California and then in the rest of the country who said, well, I, I think what we should be cooking is what we grow and we should be more like France and Italy, where the cuisine is based on what there is, not what we can import from Hawaii or mm. import from from Argentina or import from France, but but what we can grow within 10 or 20 miles of here. That's what our cooking should be grounded in. And I think we see that now. We see that when we go to a farmer's market or we grow our own food or we buy from a farmer or whatever, and then treat it really simple, simply, we see that that's the best way to cook and the best way to eat. Yeah. I mean, I went to the farmer's market this morning and picked up, you know, bread from my local baker and cultured butter from a place in Petaluma and vegetables from, you know, Long Meadow Ranch. And it did change how I felt about food. Moving to California changed for the better, I think, this this idea of, and I think, you know, the, the term is locavore, right? So you eat what's sort of ground, grown around you. Yeah. So what's next for you? Is there things on the horizon or your opinions about to change again? Um, I have a bread book coming out in the fall. Uh, apt timing post-COVID. <laughs> yeah. And it was not, a, it's a coincidence, but no one's going to believe that. Um, <laughs> I don't expect anyone to believe that. But when I was living in Berkeley in the 2015 I had a lot of time. I was sort of between projects. I was living by myself again. And um, I started baking more seriously. And I really wanted to work on whole grain bread. I wanted to sort of combine what I'd learned from making Mm. no-knead bread and sourdough bread and work on making whole grain bread. And as it happens, there were some people in Berkeley, in the Bay Area in general in those days, who were also interested in working with whole grains. Some of them were growers, some of them were distributors, and some of them were bakers, but all of them were thinking, let's grow local wheat, let's learn how to work with it, let's grow it well. So we have this whole grain, naturally fermented bread book coming out called, modestly enough, Bitman Bread, um, <laughs> coming out in November. So that's the next cookbook, Animal Vegetable Junk, which was my attempt to talk about food and agriculture and human history and human future and so on came out in February. And that was a long and tiring process. And and I there was a lot of publicity around it. So I was really busy. So I'm trying to mm-hmm. lay low a little bit this summer. We are working on the Bitman Project and our newsletter and yep. our podcast, as you know. So um, yeah, I'm I'm busy enough. Good. You've got plenty of wine to keep you occupied in the moments where you're not. Absolutely. We ask everyone which glass is less full to indicate perhaps what was your favorite. Well, that's, you know, the Sancerre glass is less full, but... um, Could be a function of the time of day. The time of day, lack of food, and so on. I mean, if you're just going to sit around drinking, I'd always go for a crisp white over a big red, but the... Less cost, whatever they're calling it, is beautiful. It's a 2008, by the way, for those listening. It's a 2008, and it's perfectly in that spot where the fruit started to drop off, and we've got all those other funky, earthy, mushroomy, saddle leathery, all those Bordeaux annoying terms that we talk about. They're starting to, to sort of populate in the glass, which is really fun. I think this is when people think about aged wine. Should I age my wine? This is a really. Yeah, this is why. This is delicious. If you're looking to try something with age, um, this is a, a great bottle to start that with. And the Sancerre with the Gerard Boulet Montdame, I mean, 2019, Chablis meets Sancerre meets something delicious to go with cheese or P-dip. Um, Mark, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. This is this has been a treat. We're both big fans. We look forward to to seeing Bitman Bread come November and reading all about what's happening with you on the Bitman Project. Until then. 
Yeah, we'll send you a copy. Thanks for having me, and uh, we'll see you soon, I'm sure. Thank you so much. The pleasure was ours. See you soon. I have so much to think about now. I feel like the rest of the day is just going to be spent wandering the streets of Napa Valley, pondering my life, because he's just so thought-provoking, right? He is, and I, I just kept coming back to the fact that he kept sort of downplaying his knowledge or experience with wine, but then but then he's like, oh, but I've been to Tuscany and yeah. Piedmont and Burgundy totally. and Rhone and I did this and that. I'm like, you know so much. <laughs> like you're actually probably more well-traveled as a wine traveler than most wine professionals. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you were so spot on with your assessment, right? Most people who say they know a lot about wine generally don't. Those who don't say they know a lot about wine generally kind of do. So I think he definitely lives in that yeah. up to that stereotype. Um, the wines were delicious today. I, I am not mad at either. The 2019 Gerard Boulet, oh. Montdam, Sancerre. I mean, my goodness, this is yeah. definitely rich and unctuous, but fresh and lively. And I'm not kidding. I really want to make that pea dip that you were talking about to go with this. I will send you the recipe. I'm going to tell you, make this when you have company, especially when peas are in season. You can get the really fresh ones like from the farmer's market. It will blow their minds. Mm. It's so good. And yet perfect pairing with this Sancerre. That's exciting. You know, as I was drinking that, I was like, ooh, what else goes with Sauvignon Blanc? Asparagus and white asparagus with like a nice, like, hollandaise is what we do over top. Yeah. This could totally work. And then the 2008 Clos du Marquis, the non-second wine, first wine of Leo Villascas. <laughs> I meant what I said. It is a killer value for what we're getting in this bottle. A killer value in a library vintage, your point. I mean, in yes. 08, to have something that's been stored perfectly where you can really get a snapshot of that vintage, but... And how it's progressed since then, it's it's a killer value. And it's in such a great spot right now. You know, we're at, what, 2021, this is 2008, so it's got, you know, a good 12, 13 years on it. Mm-hmm. This is doing really well in terms of retaining its fruit and then also giving you some of those, like we alluded to, some of those mushroomy, earthy things that are happening. Yeah. So a good way for people to experiment with age without really needing to commit to something that's, you know, in the, the two, three, four times as much. Um, And a good way to get a sense of Bordeaux. I mean, stylistically, I think this is like pretty spot on. So I'm not mad at either of these. Pretty classic. Sign me up. And on that note of signing up, where can people go to sign up for these wines? You can find these at wineaccess.com. And of course, if you want to follow us on social media, we're at Wine Access on Instagram or the Wine Access Experience on Facebook. And what about the podcast? If someone wanted to, let's say, follow the podcast where would they go we are on wine access unfiltered on instagram at wine access pod on twitter and then if you are loving what we're doing and you want more of it go ahead and subscribe to this show go ahead and leave us a review rate the podcast preferably on the higher side and we really appreciate all of your support and we've got a big day of drinking and pondering ahead of us vanessa i hope you're ready amanda I'm so ready. (laughs) Born ready. She's ready. Yeah. Let's go whip out the peas and make some food and drink all these delicious wines and I'll see you soon. All right. Cheers. Cheers.